My wife Alina's uh, mother, Emery, was an amazing artist, and so we're privileged to have a few, a few pieces at the church. There's the Jerusalem piece that's right outside um, in the narthex. If you, if you notice, it has the, the hills of Jerusalem and gold and the golden sunset. And in the office, we have this kind of seascape she, she painted. And so I think she left us, she passed away just before our marriage, but she left us like 400 oils on canvas. So this amazing, amazing treasure. Uh, this gift um, that we have, our house is filled with these amazing oil paintings. She was a trained artist, grew up in, in Romania, uh, was, born, was born in Romania, went to uh, Art Institute in Romania, and studied tapestry, um, got a master's in tapestry design. Uh, but at that time, uh, whenever you finished your, your thesis at art school in Romania, in Ceausescu's Sh- Sh- Communist Romania, um, the, the piece went to the state. And so her tapestries were hanging in uh, Romanian embassies around the world. And that was without any record of what happened to them. Um, but her, her, her paintings, when, whenever she kind of started doing oils as her primary medium, are, are extremely complex. And there's these, this layer upon layer. And you can almost you can get up really close. She used to love to let people touch the oil. Um, because the reason why you use oil is it's, it lasts a long time. And so, um, and so you can feel the difference. It's a powerful thing to take a child and let them touch a painting uh, and have that, have that feel. But you see behind, uh, behind the image is almost always another image in this kind of like this hidden, this layering, this deep complexity. Uh, but but Anne-Marie as well, like with this, this extremely complex artistic sense, had this amazing manner of just getting to the point of the heart of the matter. And sometimes, if she ever got frustrated, she would just ask this question, are you in the construction business or the destruction business? <laughs> and sometimes, when I, my interactions with her, I kind of bristle at that. It's like, oh, you know, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, but I think, she, I think she was right. I think there's a simplicity in a lot of life. In that. Are, you, are you in the construction business? Are you building up this world? Or are you in the destruction business? Are you just tearing it down? My friends, we're starting a new series on, with a simple title called Happiness. Um, what is it? <laughs> that's, that's the title. <laughs> Happiness, colon, what is it? Um, and I think that's, so often, it's kind of an assumed thing, that, that we understand what is going on. I think this is a really deep question. Last week, uh, Pastor Tina preached on the Beatitudes, the first, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in this very famous text, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And even I, it's so hard to get away, break away from this, this habit of saying blessed um, in this way. And this, this King James English is one of those, those words, that, those biblical passages that help shape the entire language that we speak. But, but blessed or blessed doesn't seem like a really concrete thing for many of us. The, the Greek word that Jesus uses is makarios, which is almost better translated as happy. And it really makes those Beatitudes sound a little, a little odd to our ears somewhat. And so this is a newer translation, the Common English Bible. And it translates the Beatitudes in this way from Macarius. Happy are people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Whoa, that's a little odd. Happy are people who grieve because they will be made glad. Happy are people who are humble because they will inherit the earth. Happy are people who are hungry, 
because they will be fed. Happy are people who show mercy. Happy are people who have pure hearts. Happy are people who make peace. It's a little different. Um, there's a little clash, especially that happy are people who grieve. And that kind of almost is this paradox that we can't imagine what that would look like. Happy are people who are poor in spirit. Happy are people who are hopeless. The text for today kind of continues off of that. But I think before we can talk about what it means to be salt of the earth or light of the world, this question, what does it mean to be happy? And really, for us, like, what makes us happy? And that is, I think, is a concrete question that we should all consistently ask ourselves. That there is this assumption that we even know the answer to that. This assumption that, you know, like, if you, went, if you go through this period of self-discovery, you're going to discover what makes you happy. Um, you know, you just have to go have your own rumspringa um, of sorts. You know, like the Amish have this um, habit, this tradition called rumspringa, which once you get to about 16 or 17, you get to go to the city and like live, live it up in the city. And then you realize that you can come back and, and live in the Amish way. But, um, but there's still this like society is this way of like college is this kind of period of finding yourself. And then it's like, okay, your early 20s is your period of finding yourself. Okay, your early years of marriage is your period of finding yourself. And this consistent quest of, of what does it mean to find yourself? And that doesn't even talk, get to the fact of our, our economy and media constantly telling us, you need to find yourself by buying this product that I'm selling you. Uh, and all of these products of self-discovery, all of these, like, there's a self-help bestseller list. There's so many self-help books published every week. There's a list to remind us how many are being sold every week. There's so many things and so many people wanting us to continually question ourselves. What makes us happy? And then there's an even deeper question. How do we know if we're happy? How can we, can we be honest with ourselves of a time that we know that we're happy? We're not like, um, we're not like robots that we can like, look back on our day and say, okay, I had six hours and 23 minutes of happiness today, and then move on. I have a, a friend who does this um, exercise called Orange Theory, which are like popping up all over the place, and it's, it's kind of popular in a certain subset, but they have, you have these, these bands, and you try and keep your heart rate in the orange zone for as much as you can. And so you don't want to get too high, which is the red zone, or too low, which is the green zone. You stay in the orange zone. And then at the end of the, the session, you can say, okay, I had 14 minutes in the orange zone. Yes. Um, it's apparently good. Do you want to get 12 minutes? I don't know. Um, but, you know, like, and so there's this concrete objective rating at the end of the time. Like, okay, you did this, and that is a good thing. We don't have that as human beings at the end of our day that we can look back and say, okay, I had 14 minutes in the happy zone today. That was a good day. I was like, tomorrow I'm going to try and get 16 minutes of happiness. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that, but it sometimes seems like this challenge or seems like we should all already have that figured out. And it's like, if you don't know exactly what you want and when you want it and why somehow you failed at adulting in this kind of way and the, these kind of challenges. And so... Which gets to another question of how, do we, how, do we, how can we even find ourselves? And I know I'm just laying out a bunch of questions, but I think this is really important because if we talk about the basics of living the human life, of basics of seeking something, we need to realize that a lot of the tools that our society gives us aren't that helpful. Um, college is not really a great place to find yourself. You don't just like go to college and find yourself and discover it like at the end of the past, like, oh, hello, Wilson, how are you? I'm nice, nice to meet you. Um, it's this like consistent metaphor 
um, that often can fog down to the heart of what really is going on. It can build up layers that, that are used to kind of obfuscate what is happening. So one of the ways of happiness, one of the things that I, I find helpful is thinking about these three categories, purpose, expectation, and realization. Purpose, what is the goal? What is your end? How do you, that's kind of some discourse about finding yourself. What are you trying to do with your life? How can you find out? How can you discover that? What is the direction you're walking? It's kind of like if you're trying to get, if I, I was in Dallas last week, I had a, a map to get to where I was going. If my map was going in the wrong direction, I would never get to where I was going. If I was going south and I ended up in Laredo, I would, I would not be very happy. So, so first you have to be going in the right direction. The next is your expectation. What do you expect to get out of this? If your expectation of life, even getting back to like that counting the happiness of our day, if your expectation is 18 hours of happy, pure happiness and joy a day, you're probably gonna be disappointed on most days. That we have a lot of other things to do as humans than to just be happy in that kind of way. And then how does it, how do we know? What is the realization of these things? But so one of the, one of the ways that often comes up is this, this word, in, in a lot of circles, is this word called nuance. And, um, and nuances in, in, in sociology, there's an author who talked about an article called Against Nuance. But nuance is a way, is a question and a critique. You can always pull on something. It's like, that's not nuanced enough. There's complexity, there's gray, we can, we can use this. Um, this. This author, Kieran Kelly, talks about, as alleged virtues go, nuance is superficially attractive. Is it the mark of a good thinker the ability to see subtle differences in kind or gracefully shade the meaning of terms? Shouldn't we cultivate the ability to insinuate overtones in our concept? Furthermore, isn't nuance especially appropriate in difficult problems? Our, our research problems are complex, rich, and multifaceted, when sophisticated thinkers face a rich and complex world, how, how can not, nuance not be the wisest approach? <laughs> now, nuance is not, you know, it's kind of a, a certain subset of academia that talks about that a lot. But I think often when we look at ourselves, we try and add a lot of nuance. That, oh, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. The reason why I'm not doing this is complicated. The reason why I can't do that is complicated. The reason, you know, you're like, oh, I'd love to go, I'd love to catch up with you, I'd love to catch you for dinner, but I can't. I have this, and I have this, and I have this. Or, oh, that's so great seeing you, let's get lunch sometimes. Oh, I don't know, my, my February is not looking good, my March is not looking good, my April is also not looking maybe, maybe May, maybe that looks good. So off, when the heart of the matter is, I just don't really want to. <laughs> Jesus is clear. And what he says throughout the Gospels. There's not a lot of nuance. The only nuance he does is he tells stories. He tells parables. And even then, he describes them. Jesus doesn't try and make following him difficult. The difficulty of Jesus is not, following Jesus is not in the complexity he offers, but really the simplicity of what his call is. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 58, similarly has to do with this issue of people trying to complexify what is going on with following God. And then he cuts through to the matter. <clears throat> he says, Why do we fast and you don't see? Why afflict ourselves and you don't notice? On your fast day, you do 
what you want. You oppress your workers. You quarrel and you brawl and then you fast. You hit each other violently and then you fast. And so the, Isaiah is looking at this, this dissonance between this claim of righteousness, this claim that many, many Christians throughout history have done of claiming on the one hand, oh, I am so holy and pious, and then going out the next day and oppressing our workers, of ignoring our neighbors, of walking past people, and this dissonance of going on. That Isaiah said, this is not a fast. It doesn't matter if you skip lunch when you are cursing your neighbor. It doesn't matter all the things that you do and like, oh, look at your great list of all your accomplishments when you're not actually getting to love. So then he goes on. Is this the kind of fast I choose, a day of self-affliction, of bending one's head like a reed, of lying down? Is that what you call an acceptable fast? Say, like, is God calling us to just look miserable and then keep on oppressing and keep on doing the things we want to do anyway? Is that all faith is? Is just, well, I'm going to still do the things I want to, but I'm going to be sad about it. No. Isn't this the fast I choose? Releasing wicked constraints, untying the ropes of a yoke and breaking every yoke. Isn't it sharing your bread with the hungry, bringing the homeless poor into your house, covering the naked when you see them, and not hiding from your own family. Then your light will break out like the dawn. This is the light that Jesus is alluding to in the Sermon on the Mount. The clarity of the light. The thing about light is it's either you see it or you don't. There's not a lot of nuance with light. Either the light, you know, the light bulb, it's on or it's off. You don't really have to tell. It may, you know, it may be funky and wick, you know, flicker a little bit, but it's still... It's still on, or it's off. Salt, when you taste a dish, salt is either there or it's not. <laughs> you can kind of taste it. And like when you go to a restaurant, you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's pasta, okay. Um, I remember a few years ago, the Olive Garden had these consultants come in that said they would save like $100,000 a year if they stopped salting their pasta um, because it would, they would save on pots. And um, it's like that's kind of, if you don't salt your pasta, it's not really that edible. Um, it's like one more salt joke. Uh, there's this Italian phrase that talks about, that describes a, a boring person as they're like an old unsalted egg. That you'd have, if you ever had a boiled egg without salt on it and you put it in your mouth and it's just like... <laughs> it's either salty or it's not. There's a clarity about what is going on. Paul in, in, first, in first Corinthians 2 Gets, gets to this matter as well, where he talks about how he talks about how he, he did not come with lofty words. The point of following Jesus is not having a bunch of fancy words. It's not about a bunch of fancy robes and, and shawls and all these, these kind of words. Now, there's a purpose to them, but that is not the point. It's not looking at old songs or new songs. That is not the point of faith. And so often we can get confused and think that that's really what's going on. We miss the heart of the matter. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come preaching God's secrets to you like I was an expert. So often that is the case. It's like Christians present themselves, oh, I know so, I'm so much holier than you. I know more than you. That's what you should be doing. Oh, what is your, what is your child doing now? Oh, my gosh. All these kinds of things. <laughs> I had made up my mind 
not to be thinking about anything with you except Jesus Christ and to preach him crucified. I stood in front of you with weakness, fear, and trembling. My message and my preaching were presented with convincing, wise words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul is, is reminding us and telling us that we don't, that the point of faith is not the lofty words, it's not, it's not the nuance of it. The message of Jesus is direct and clear. And so often, nuance and, and, and complexity is a way to protect ourselves from actually having to take that step forward. To take that step of faith. Salt of the earth is this unique phrase that, that Jesus uses in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's one that's not found in a lot of places. But what, what it really gets to the heart of is that faithful disciples must get in the dirt. They must get into the ground that life of faith is about being earthy. It's not about being pristine and separate. It's about being in the world and showing God's light in the world. Happiness is not a treasure at the end of the rainbow that you don't just get a book or you one, one nice trick and then you get it. You don't just, you know, you know, like if only I get married, I'll be happy. Well, that doesn't work. If only I have kids, I'll be happy. Well, that doesn't work. If only I have grandkids, I'll be happy. If only I have a good 401k, I'll be happy. If only I have travel to all these places and the ways that the world tells us that if only we do this, we'll be happy. We'll finally get to that thing that we expect. And we constantly justify and rationalize where we have been. Happiness is not this treasure at the end of a rainbow. God's blessing can be here. God's offering of blessedness can be here for us. But to begin that, we need to stop lying to ourselves about what we want. We need to start offering ourselves to others. That's what the point of salt and light is. Salt and light cannot be for itself. Light for itself has no purpose. If you turn on the light in your closet and close the door, it's not helping you. So often, that's, we can rationalize ourselves, well, I'm shining here, isn't that enough? When we use that as, as ways of coming back to ourselves and doing the things we wanted to do anyway, when what God is calling us to do is actually to transform our desires, to transform who we want to be and how we want to live, and that's how God offers happiness to us. Happiness is not this, this, this treasure, this, this result at the end of what we get. It's not this kind of penicillin that, that saves us. Happiness is transforming how we see the world so that we can see as God sees. And that we see that the greatest thing we can do is actually offering ourselves for others, is sharing life with others. The greatest joy we can receive in this life is not found on a spa day, but found in offering ourselves. And that may be in prayer, that may be in mission, that may be in ministry, that may be in many multiple ways. But it's not going to be staying put. That God is calling us and reminding us that the status quo will never save us. That doing the same thing again and again cannot. You are salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its flavor, its saltiness cannot be restored. If you don't keep digging into the dirt of this life, it cannot be destroyed. My brothers and sisters, I encourage you at this time that God's call is not as complex as we make it to be. The Sermon on the Mount 
is not as complex as we make it out to be. God's call is simple on our life. Follow me. But we are not alone. Even if this day it may seem like, I cannot do that, I cannot take that step, you are not alone. God is here with us. What that step may look like for each of us is different, but I encourage you to take a step this week. There is joy found in stepping towards others in your life. There is joy found in stepping towards faith and stepping out towards love and emptying yourself of those, those things in your life that keep us from love and holding on to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.